Page 398, if you're using the, the Pew Bible, bring you to uh, the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, we're actually um, kind of jumping in in the middle of a story because Ezra and Nehemiah were written as one book. And so technically, uh, we're, we're coming into the middle of the story. Why not start with Ezra? I like Nehemiah better. That's really the, that's, that's the extent of it. So um, uh, they're, they're different stories for sure, um, uh, but connected in that they, they take place during the same time, that period of exile, um, after Israel's fallen to their captors, and uh, they speak in similar ways of rebuilding uh, Jerusalem. Ezra focuses on rebuilding uh, the temple and Nehemiah on the city itself. Um, But uh, we also did consider uh, some of uh, some of the import of Ezra when we were looking at the book of Zechariah not too long ago. He ministered as a prophet during the time of Ezra, so we've already got some background there. Uh, But for now, chapter 1 of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. To hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, 
I was cupbearer to the king. In Matthew 16, verse 18, the Lord Jesus Christ makes a wonderful, powerful declaration. He promises, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a wonderful thing to hear those words from the lips of our Savior, but we should recognize that that was no new promise. The entire story of the Bible, of Scripture, it's the record of God building his church, uh, uh, not putting up scaffolding per se, but pulling up saints from the pit and transforming them. Ever since the fall, he's been gathering and sanctifying and growing his people. We know that truly is the church, not the building, the people. He has been building his church And he's done so through all kinds of means and all kinds of individuals and servants. Nehemiah was a church builder. Nehemiah was a church builder. He was called and commissioned by God to rebuild the fallen walls of the city Jerusalem. But remember that Jerusalem in Judea was a picture, was always meant to be a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem, the real city of God, Inhabited now by the glorified saints above, by innumerable angels and festal gatherings surrounding the throne of God, and these uh, saints who've gone before singing praises to the Lamb. That's the church triumphant. Jerusalem was always meant to be a picture of the church. And so that's why, although he initially goes to rebuild walls, Nehemiah ends up reforming saints. He does real church building work in that sense. That's what God wants in his city. He doesn't want better walls, better infrastructure. He wants better citizens. And so the care and the energy and even the fervor, uh, the diligence that Nehemiah exhibits in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem is recorded for us in this um, little book here in the middle of our our Old Testaments. That that energy, that that, um, fervor, that diligence... It is a picture of the very same care and energy and diligence that Jesus exhibits to keep this promise. I will build my church. That's what we learn in this book. That God is in the business of building up his people. And that he will never let them be torn asunder. Well, let's consider our church builder, Nehemiah. As we encounter him in these opening verses, the book opens quite bleakly, detailing for us Nehemiah's predicament. That's the first thing we'll consider, his predicament. His name, interestingly enough, means Yahweh has comforted, and yet this one whose name means Yahweh has comforted is is in need of comfort. Uh, He's he's distressed. There are a couple of things that are distressing uh, Nehemiah. For one, it's just the fact that his... uh, His nation has been essentially wiped off the world stage. Israel is no longer a a world power in any sense. They're not going to be hosting the Olympics anytime soon. They're not going to host a G20 summit, anything like that. They have no political clout uh, in the world, no sway, no say. In fact, Israel is losing cultural influence even among their own people because notice what Nehemiah says as he narrates this story. How does he track time? Verse 1, now it happened 
in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. The 20th year of what? This is a reference to the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. Persia is now the central, all-controlling influence in Nehemiah's life. This is even how he tracks time. Not because of what's going on in Israel, but because of what's going on in Persia. And so that's a distressor for Nehemiah as just the state of his, his homeland. Um, second is the fact that he's living far from Israel. He is in Susa, that is the citadel, that's the capital of Persia. Some Israelites, as we read about, remained in their homeland. They, they escaped the exile, right? They weren't carted off. Uh, Nehemiah was. That means he's a slave. That's distressing. But third and most distressing of all is the report that comes to him from some of those Israelites who remain back in the home, uh, uh, including his brother. His brother's come for a visit, Hanani. And, uh, of course, he's coming from Jerusalem. He's meeting uh, Nehemiah and Susa. And, and it's just natural. The first thing that Nehemiah says is, how are things going back at home? Tell me. Give, give me a report on how the family's doing and, and how our people are faring And then the answer comes in verse 3. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, in one sense, this should not be anything new. This this isn't news for Nehemiah. Um, He is writing in uh, 445 B.C., 445 B.C., so that's the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. Well, Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians uh, over 100 years before that in 586. So what's being described here isn't so much a report on something new that has happened, but rather something that has not happened. I think we should read this and interpret it as the walls are still in ruins. Things still haven't gotten any better. People are still in shame. Ezra at this point has gone back. He's rebuilt the temple, but the city itself, the holy city, is just a pile of rubble. It is shameful, and Nehemiah is distressed to hear that. And we see that come out in verse 4 as, secondly, we consider Nehemiah's passion. His predicament gives way to his passion, his emotion. Notice how he has such care for God's people and God's city that even though he is far from them and he's far from her, as soon as he receives this, this news, he falls down and he's moved to tears. Right, Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He loses his strength. Have you ever received news like that where you feel like you need to, to hold on to something to steady you? Because you can't take it in. You, you, you've lost stability. Um, that, that's Nehemiah here. He, his legs give out. He, he sits down and then the tears come and they keep coming for days. Maybe you've also experienced that yourself. Maybe you're in a period of mourning right now where you've received news, bad news, maybe a couple days ago, maybe a couple weeks ago. And yet, when the thought comes back, so do the tears. Do you know that kind of mourning? Of course, the greater we love something, When we lose it, I think the greater the mourning will be. That's Nehemiah here. He's fallen down. He's he's crying and he he can't stop. Why? Well, because 
God's city, the, the, the church, God's church on earth, Jerusalem, which is meant to be holy, is in shambles. The people which are to be prized and protected by God are harassed and they're helpless. And so he's mourning, he's passionate about, about his God and, and the holiness of his God. And he, he grieves how the people have not lived up to that holiness. He mourns the poor reflection that the church is of her God, that she was a poor host for her Lord and her Redeemer. Because you'll remember the temple at the very center of the city is, is the dwelling place of Yahweh. That's, that's where he dwells on earth. Yet God could not dwell with such a sinful people, and so he gives them up. And, and this will become explicit in, in just a few verses. Nehemiah mourns the sin that caused the Lord to leave and, in a sense, abandon his people in that way. You know, there is plenty of sin in the church today that would cause Nehemiah to fall down and weep over. There's plenty of sin in the church today. And I know that because I'm part of the church. And there's plenty of sin in me. There's plenty of sin that would make Nehemiah weep. The church, like Jerusalem, was the dwelling place, is now the dwelling place of God. That's, that's what changed in the New Covenant. It's not this one location. Rather, instead, it is the hearts of God's people. And, and more than that, even, there's a special sense in which God dwells with us when we gather together. And what we're doing right now, the church, this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. We are the temple of the living God. He's speaking to the church there. And say, you all separately or individually are the temple, although that is true. But we, coming together, we are now the temple of God. And if it made Nehemiah grieve that God's holy place was laid low by sin, should we not grieve the instances where sin has infiltrated the church? When uh, ministers and, and leaders fall into gross sin, when churches split and, and divide over petty issues, when false teaching makes its way in and, and, and people come by droves and, and, you know, by the hundreds and the thousands to hear a false gospel. Should we not grieve over that? He doesn't just grieve. He, you know, he also takes on a fast. He quits eating. You know, that, that certainly is a, a religious act, right? That's a way in which somebody could express repentance, turning back to God. I'm going to refrain from eating. I wonder, though, for Nehemiah, if it was he just lost his appetite. That's how sickened he was by this. Do you care that much about holiness, friends? Would we lose our appetites over the reality of sin in the church? Well, what's Nehemiah to do? He's mile away from Jerusalem. He He's just a slave serving in Susa. What could he possibly do to change the dismal situation back home? Well, he can do only one thing, but it's actually the most important thing. And that is he can pray. He can pray. It's the only thing he can do, but it's actually the best thing to do. Uh, Abraham Lincoln once said that I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction 
that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of those around me seemed insufficient for the day. That's Nehemiah, driven to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. So he falls, falls to his knees, and he prays. So we consider after Nehemiah's predicament and his passion, Nehemiah's prayer. Now notice this prayer has three elements. It begins there in verse uh, 5 through verse 11. And the first is adoration. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He extols God. He extols God as the great and awesome God. I remember when I was in fifth grade or sixth grade, I had a Bible teacher at our school who said, you may never use the word awesome unless you're talking about God. Because if pizza is awesome, what is God? The Bible says he's awesome. Oh, I remember that still. Because often, I think we must have had the class the same day we had pizza day at lunch. It was always about pizza. Pizza's not awesome. Pizza's not awesome. God's awesome. God's awesome. It means that when you call upon this God and you meet this God, you're filled with awe, with wonder. It's like he's mind-blowing. You can't take it all in. He's the God of fear, the God who makes your mouth stop with his power. And yet, Nehemiah praises this awesome God, this terrifying God, this powerful God. He praises him in that he used his power not to destroy his people, but actually to bless them. He's entered into a covenant, right? The great and awesome God, verse 5, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with or steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, admittedly, it wouldn't seem like there's much of a relationship at all between God and his people right now, would it? Uh, while the city's in ruins and half the nation is living far from home in captivity, that's why Nehemiah moves, secondly, in this prayer from adoration to confession. Starting in verse 6. I pray night and day for the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we've sinned against you. Notice how he includes himself. The sins of the people of Israel, it seems like he's pointing a finger, but then he says, which we have sinned. And then to make it very clear, even I and my father's house have sinned. That's really instructive, I think. He doesn't presume that the judgment that's fallen on the nation is because of a bygone generation. You know, uh, my father, my great-grandfather, or my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they got it all wrong, God, and, and I'm, I'm really sorry about that. And if I could change it, I would. But just know, like, you and I, we're on good terms, right, God? We often read the Bible like that, I think, right? We read the Bible and we think all of the promises are for us and all of um, the warnings and the threatenings are for other people, Right? Me and God, though, we're good. Nehemiah is too realistic. He understands what sin does and how sin needs to be addressed and acknowledged. And this is a key quality for a church builder. If someone wants to uh, set their hand to the work of building up Christ's kingdom in whatever way that might look, listen, if, if you want to be part of building Christ's kingdom, 
You need to know these two things, right? If a pastor wants to go into ministry, he needs to know these two things. If somebody wants to go in the mission field, they need to know these two things. If you want to be involved in the ministry of our church, you need to know these two things very clearly. One, the church is full of sinners. And two, you are one of them. And I am one of them. That's what Nehemiah does here. And he acknowledges in his confession that God has made it clear. God had told them beforehand what would happen because they're sinners and at times unrepentant sinners. And in verse 8, he quotes from just a portion of Leviticus 26 where God says, I'll scatter you among the peoples. If you want to turn there, though, I'm going to read the greater context of Leviticus 26. Um, It's quite grim, but it's filled with warnings. If we begin at verse 14... Let the weight of this sink in. This is what God warns the people. If you will not listen to me and will not do all of these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I'll do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, with fever that consume the eyes and makes the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies." Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee, even though none are pursuing you. Verse 23, skipping over. And if by this discipline you're not turned to me, but you continue to walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I'll bring a sword upon you that you shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I'll send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Does that sound like Israel at this point, living in Persia? How about verse 40? I'll destroy your high places. I'll cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you, will hate you, God says. And I'll lay your cities waste. I'll make your sanctuaries desolate, and I'll not smell your pleasing aromas. He's saying, I, I won't receive your worship. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. Right? That was the line that he quoted. I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. What is Nehemiah doing as he quotes that in his prayer? He's saying, Lord We have no excuses to make. We knew this was coming. I have nothing to hide behind, Lord. I have no no excuses I can offer up. We got what we deserve. But here's the good thing. Nehemiah also knows that because God is that faithful God who keeps steadfast love, he knows that God always tucks in a blessing even as he pronounces a curse. And that's why... He moves from Leviticus straight to a promise that's found in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 4. If your outcasts are even in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And so, what we have in this prayer is he quotes Leviticus 26. God says, if you disobey me, I will send you to the uttermost parts of the the four corners of the world. But then Deuteronomy 30. And even if you're in the four corners of the world, I will gather you together. God, hiding this blessing, 
even amidst a terrible curse. And this is Nehemiah's plea. Not saying we deserve your favor, but he's saying you promised your favor. And this is the third part of his prayer. We said start with adoration, and then it was supplication. Or no, then it was confession. Now it's supplication. Notice what he pleads. Notice what his request is. It's the best request anybody can make in prayer. He's saying, God, do what you promised to do. Why is that the best kind of prayer you can make? Because God will always do it. Nehemiah pleads the promises of God. He says, you promised to bring us back if we return to you. So bring us back. And I think then there, there must be then an implicit request in Nehemiah's prayer that God would change the hearts of the people so that they would return to the Lord. He's saying, you said that if we turn back to you, you will gather us back in. So gather us back in by turning us to you. And that's why, as we will find out through the rest of this book, Nehemiah's main mission is not actually to build up the walls. It is to reform the city. It's to reform the people who live there. He is already realizing that a prerequisite to that rebuilding effort is a reform movement. And even that can only come from God. So he pleads the promises of God. He prays the best way any of us ever could pray. One Puritan calls this kind of praying where you, you present to God his own promises. He says that kind of praying is showing God his own handwriting. Look, I'm not making this up. You said it. You promised it. God will never deny, never turn away, never say no to that kind of prayer, a prayer that's based upon his own promises to us. And then there's this final supplication in verse 11, which at least as I read it, I don't know about you, I, I think it kind of seems like it comes out of nowhere, a little odd. He says, so give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. That's puzzling. Why is it puzzling? Well, because we don't know who this man is. We can make a good guess that your servant, that language is almost always self-referential. It's talking about me. Give me success in the sight of this man. Who is this man and why does Nehemiah need success in front of him? And the reason that it's puzzling is because we don't yet know what we're going to find out in the very last sentence of the chapter, which is the fourth and final thing this evening, Nehemiah's position. Nehemiah's position. Where he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the man that I'm praying about. Give me success in the sight of the king. Why does he need success in front of the king? Well, I'll tell you, Nehemiah says. It's as though he's, he's finished praying, and now he, he turns to the audience and himself, and he says, you see, there's something you don't know about me that I should probably let you in on at this point in the story. I have an interesting job. I have a unique situation here. I'm cupbearer to the king of Persia. It's a simple statement. It's almost like a throwaway comment, but it's brevity hides its massive significance. What's a cupbearer? Well, it's not a small job. It's not, it doesn't mean he's a table server. It's actually a very high position, a very lofty position. The cupbearer was the person in charge of ensuring that the king's personal chalice 
had not been poisoned, and this is something that Artaxerxes would be really um, uh, keen on because a number of Persian kings before him had, in fact, been poisoned. And so the cupbearer would, as they prepared the meal, would take the wine first, and, and uh, he would, would take a sip, and then everybody just kind of stares. I think they probably count. They're probably thinking 10, 9, 8, 7, right? Okay, it's good. Now give it over to the king. Tough job, right? Um, and you would think, oh, well, surely they just give that to some menial nobody, right? I mean, if they're going to die by being poisoned, you don't want to give it to somebody who matters. But it's actually the opposite. You give it to somebody you trust. It's a high position. Why is that? Because although this person has the highest risk of being killed through being poisoned, they also have the greatest opportunity to do the poisoning themselves, Right? They have that moment where they're holding the chalice. Nobody else is. So that's why the cupbearer was somebody that the king trusted, almost more than anybody else. Not that they were an advisor, per se, but they definitely had that trust of the king. And it was a position of great access to the king. And you would think Artaxerxes, he would have a Persian in that position, not a Jew who might hold a grudge against the king that, you know, We've been in captivity all these years, and I'm really getting tired of it, so maybe I'll just throw some uh, or spill some arsenic into this, this Chardonnay here and, you know, just see what, what happens. Clearly, clearly, Nehemiah's character had won him over to the Persian king. And now we understand his prayer a little better. He, he's praying that the Lord somehow would use his access to Artaxerxes to aid in the restoration of Israel. So, what's Nehemiah doing for his readers? Why does he add that line there right at the end? Why does he wait till that moment to tell us? Why does he close out chapter 1? Now, I was cupbearer to the king. He's teaching us a lesson. And the lesson is this. And you all need to hear it. The lesson is this. Even in the darkest situation... Even, even in the most grim of circumstances, even when it seems like evil is reigning, even when all hope seems to be lost, even when you're deep behind enemy lines, God always has his man. God always has his man. Nehemiah couldn't have known it before, but I think now he's starting to see that everything had been leading, everything that happened to him in his life had been leading up to this moment. How he had been, had been carted off to, to Persia or, or his, his um, father, perhaps his grandfather's family, carted off and then he'd been uh, grown up in a foreign land and yet had been given this privileged position of being cupbearer and, and none of it probably made sense to him. This, this, whole, this whole situation is just so heartbreaking. But now, now I think maybe Nehemiah is starting to see What's been taking place? I've been put here for a reason. I'm God's inside man. You know, he maybe uh, should have been meditating on the story of Joseph, a man also deep in enemy territory, who was then elevated to the right-hand position of the king, providentially positioned to rescue the church, rescue God's people. That's Nehemiah right here, behind enemy lines, but elevated to the right hand of the king, providentially positioned to help the church. God had done it before. God is doing it with Nehemiah. 
God is doing it right now. We'll close with Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 20. We're told again here how God always has his man to help his church. Ephesians 1.20 says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at where? At his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And God put all things under Christ's feet. Why? Well, to make him head over all things for the sake of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so, dear Christian, as you look to the state of the world right now, as you see what appears to be the, the ever-increasing um, presence and, and power and uh, persuasiveness of Sin and sinful idolatries. As you see the onslaught of the forces of hell. Find hope in the fact that God has his man right where he needs to be. At the right hand of the cosmic throne. Perfectly situated to help his church. And to build his church. Let's pray. Almighty God. We thank you for your word to us. We acknowledge that it is bread from heaven. You feed us with your word. Lord, we do ask that our souls would have been nourished by this study in a book that in some respects could be obscure to us, so far removed from our situation, our context, and yet we see here a theme of how you work. We learn more of who you are, who you've always been, who you always will be, a God who is ready and able to aid his people, to build his church even up to perfection till the day of glorification. We thank you for that. Would our hopes always be in the one who sits at your right hand, the one whom you have placed as head of the church and indeed head over all things for the sake of the church. Yes, indeed, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.